I mean, people come to this sport from all different avenues. Um, I was a late bloomer. I was not very athletic in high school or college. Um, and I got into running in my mid twenties in graduate school. Um, but I took my time. I, first I did road running and I did five K's and 10 K's and marathons. And I switched over to trail and graduated to ultra in the early to mid 2000s. Um, but it took me 20 years from starting as a, getting into running in 1994 to 2014 to do my first 100 miler. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpre's all-new, all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, Go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe balm today. And that's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today is a woman after my own heart. Um, she is the author of the Trail Runners Companion. If you're on the video version, you can see the book. Um, so you're going to want to check that out. And we're going to get deep into trail running, I'm sure. She's an ultra runner herself, a professional ultra running coach. Um, and if you are, don't do ultras, I'm sure she can help you with that as well. But that is not where she stops. She does other things like freelance writing. She's dedicated to nonprofit board service, currently leading um, at a local nonprofit. She's a mother of two, an avid horsewoman. Welcome to the show, Sarah Lavender-Smith. Hi, Jesse. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for joining me. Uh, before we get going, and so I don't get it incorrect, because I think I remember what you said uh, before we got going, you think it's important because you had previously been a co-host of the podcast, that we mentioned your age. So I'll let you tell us uh, what it is and why you think that's important. Well, I, I'm actually, my training is as a journalist. I, I went to graduate school in journalism and used to work as a newspaper reporter. So we were always taught you should include a person's age because it, it just tells you something about the person. But I'm on the older side. I'm, I'm 52 now. And I think it's important that, that people hear from older athletes. And I really stress longevity in the sport. So yeah, I'm an empty nester who's raised two kids. And, and now I'm over 50, 52. And I'm proud of it. It seems like that... That's the thing you know, we were talking about before we were recording. I see people try to get real ambitious about marathons in particular, though you probably see some people do this in the in the ultra world as well, like really try to just zoom into let's do 50 milers and let's like just crank it out and start doing these high mileage as fast as we can. And I feel like I don't know whether you watch South Park, but there's this episode where their kids are learning how to ski and there's this instructor that is trying to teach them and keeps talking about if you do this you're gonna have a bad time and that's what comes into my head every time somebody's like i basically don't run at all and i want to go run this very long distance race i'm like if you do that you're gonna have a bad time like it's just you're setting yourself up for injury for setback for just and some people get away with it and i think that's part of the trouble i guess is that some people can do it but in general, I think it's ill-advised. Yeah. 
Yeah, some people do dive right into it. I mean, people come to this sport from all different avenues. Um, I was a late bloomer. I was not very athletic in high school or college. Um, and I got into running in my mid twenties in graduate school. Um, but I took my time. I, first I did road running and I did 5Ks and 10Ks and marathons. And I switched over to trail and graduated to ultra in the early to mid 2000s. Um, but it took me 20 years from starting as a, getting into running in 1994 to 2014 to do my first 100 miler. And now so many people are getting into trail and ultra. They want to, you know, they go from running a half marathon on dirt to planning a hundred miler four months later. And it's doable, but I, I feel like what's the rush? I mean, success at ultra running depends so much on experience and on mm -hmm. mental preparation, like physical fitness alone won't get you through a hundred miles. So taking your time with it and enjoying the journey and not being a rising star who flames out in 18 months, I think is a better way to go. And so I don't currently exist in the, in the trail community. That's not my, my current niche though. I'm starting to kind of look that direction. So we'll get more to that in a minute, but it, at least from reading the book and my general, I don't know, uh, feeling about the community, the whole idea of like just being performance focused almost seems like antithesis to the, like the ethos of trail running itself. Right. Where it's like, it, it seems again, I'm kind of a little bit outside looking in, so please correct me. It seems it's a little bit more like enjoyment focused. It's like inwardly focused self, you know, self-motivated, like that kind of thing versus like, I'm absolutely the winner or whatever, like that kind of mentality. Well, I don't know. Well, so it's interesting. So you're bringing up an interesting point. So historically, you know, back when, back in the days of the early 2000s pre-social media mm -hmm. um this this ultra running community was much much smaller there were many fewer ultras offered throughout the country and world and it was more of a fringe thing and i mean when i got into it it was easy to get to know who's who um but it, it it's taken off much as marathons boomed in the 90s mm -hmm. ultra running is going through a similar boom um and that has its pros and cons i think more women are getting into the sport now just as they got more into marathoning um but the humility that used to rule the sport i mean when i got into ultras again before social media and people would share their race reports via email saying like you don't have to read this if you don't want to but this was my experience now with instagram and everything everyone's all about trying to get sponsorships and it's very show-offy in my view and and there are big personalities in the sport and i mean this week we're we're recording this um, two days before both UTMB and Leadville 100 happen. Mm -hmm. And those are very, very performance oriented and yeah. very high stakes. So it's not a little fringe sport in any way anymore. It's like, and also the, the, the way that corporate, um, cor big, big names like Ironman and Spartan and everything are gobbling up the, the, what used to be homegrown races. It's, mm -hmm. it's fundamentally changing. I mean, it's still a very friendly sport and, and absolutely it, it can and should be a 
personal journey, especially for mid packers, you don't have to be super competitive to get into it. You can find your space. And, you know, as a coach, I always encourage um, my clients to, to compete with their watch and with their inner self. Like you are just out there to do your best. And, and my view on comp competition is, is you make friends mentally with the runners around you and you're all in it together and you help your competitors, your friends carry you along um, at least the first three quarters of the race and then you can try to drop them. But, but um, yeah, I, I, I have always found a strong sense of community in this sport, which I really value and I, and I hope some of the humility still persists. I kind of question whether it will. Yeah, I kind of had a similar conversation with a number of people. Um, you know, we talk about Iron Man definitely has become so much more than like a, a fringe sport that just a few weirdos are out doing. And I say that lovingly. I don't say that in a mean way. Um, and then I, I wish I could remember who it was. I, I feel like it was a gentleman on the, on the podcast talking about off-road triathlon. Um, gosh, I can't remember his name right now but talking about like a similar kind of like vibe to the races that they're smaller, a little more community focused, all that kind of thing. And then it's like starting to grow and it comes a little bit more competitive and I'll say diluted in some sense, just because you get such a broader mixture of personalities, the more and more people that you have there. And I think I wonder, it, it maybe it's simply a matter of like romanticizing the situation. But it's like, I, I wonder, is it good to always grow a sport? Is it gatekeeping to not grow the sport? Like, you know, the, the different things no, you have I, to I weigh. Think, so I think, well, one, one point I want to make is um, ultra races, especially on, on, in mountainous terrain, they will always be smaller and friendlier because the size of races will always be smaller. Right. I mean, I just did a hundred miler three weeks ago that had its permit capped at 150 participants. So UTMB happening in Europe with several thousands of runners is still the exception rather mm -hmm. than the norm. I mean, most, most trail and ultra races are going to be smaller because the, <laughs> the physical, um, terrain of the trail and the permitting process limits participants. And I think that's a good thing. It makes it harder it makes it harder to get into popular races. And that's why we've seen a growth of, of the lottery process to get into more popular races, but the market responds and a lot of new races and new race directors have, have come up. Mm -hmm. um, I also, I, I definitely support the growth of the sport because it supports health and wellness. I mm -hmm. mean, what a wonderful thing for, for people to find a way beyond hiking um, to get out in nature and that, that, that appreciation of nature and being out in a more natural environment, hopefully will inspire people to, to take care of that natural environment. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think growth is a good thing and we've seen a growth in races that are offered. I think it's a very healthy sport generally. So in general, I think it's a good thing for sure. I just, um, I hope that it doesn't become so high, high profile and profit oriented that all the bad things start to creep in, such as, you know, namely doping 
um, right. you know, the, the, the other things that come with, with higher stakes sports. Yeah. Um, you touched on this a little bit talking about, um, being out in nature, kind of being more mindful of wanting to care for the terrain and surroundings. Um, I remember before we got going, I, you know, I said, I had mentioned you in a, one of the running videos I did for the, the YouTube channel. And I couldn't, th- at the time, I couldn't think of what it was, but I, I just did a video on, um, does running in nature make you happy? And so I, I want to touch on that with you and get your opinion on that. But it seems like that kind of like, I'll call it like a mindfulness aspect of the sport kind of bridges all those things together where you're like, you're out in nature and experiencing it, but then also you affect it in part by being out there. And then also just through your everyday you know, consumption or lack of consumption of products and, you know, choices and what you make. And if you work with nonprofits like you do, although I don't know what your the nonprofits you work with do, um, but, it, you know, it, they all seems to kind of blend together, at least in my theoretical um, situation here. Uh, so I'd like your, I guess, opinion on does running in nature make you happier versus all the road races? <laughs> And does the mindfulness come naturally as, as a rhythm of being out for so long, or is it something you, you have to actually work on? So I, well, I don't want to in any way discourage people from road running. I mean, running is running and most trail runners do a mix of pavement and dirt. And it's interesting. So I relocated here to Southwest Colorado and I'm in this blissful, beautiful mountain environment. Our house is at 9,000 feet. So I'm pretty altitude adapted. But before that, I spent the past um, 25 years in the East Bay area in a very urban environment. And I'm feeling, I'm missing it. Like I used to at least once a week run around Oakland's Lake Merritt, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, a paved flat path it's, you know, it's vibrant. I mean, you have city noises, you have more cultural and racial diversity there than I'll ever see here in Southwest Colorado. Yeah, You've got, you know, you're dodging homeless people and it feels, I love that. I'm feeling nostalgic for that. So you can run in a very urban environment and, and still be very happy and very mindful and take in all the all, all that's happening around you. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think is beneficial about running in a more natural environment rather than just sticking to roads. Um, well, one is there's, it's, I think it's healthier insofar as generally speaking, a natural trail environment is going to have a lot more variety mm-hmm. and challenge you in different ways because of the hill profile, unless you're in a very, you know, unless you're in Kansas, um, you're going to have a, a hill profile that's very, very variable. You're going to have rocks and roots and different natural obstacles. Mm-hmm. And your pace is going to vary. I mean, when I was a dedicated marathoner, road marathoner, and I was so precise about my pace work so that, you know, I just knew intuitively without looking at my watch what a 730 mile felt felt like versus a 745 mile. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you're very, very pace oriented. All that goes out the windows when you're in the mountains. I mean, I might get my pace under nine minutes per mile when I'm running down a rocky slope, but you know, on flats and uphills, I'm going to be downshifting to hiking. I'm going to be 
my pace will go as slow as 20 minutes a mile if mm -hmm. it's a lot of hiking up a scree field. Um, so it creates more intuitive running and more adaptability and flexibility. Um, and you just kind of, you know, as you might've read in my book, one of my favorite pieces of advice is you just take what the trail gives mm -hmm. you. And that means you just, you just run the best you can or hike if you have to hike with whatever stretch of trail happens to be in front of you, whether it's sand or rock or mud or whatever, uh, or snow, um, you get it all. And so that makes me, that kind of um, variety um, makes me very happy. And, and yes, then being out in nature, just the peacefulness. I mean, I, I only use my phone for safety and I do listen to some audiobooks or podcasts while I'm run, but mostly like, I'm, I'm very unplugged and mm -hmm. focused on my surroundings. So in that, and I do my best thinking. I mean, it's, I come back home and I feel so much more productive because I've um, worked out things mentally during my run. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I do that as well. And it, so I, I, I backed off a little bit um, in telling people not to like take music out and whatever, just, but I, I was a big advocate for a long time, like, don't take your music, just because I think there's so much benefit from not having the extra layer of like input into your brain when you're out and doing things and able to spend time with yourself. Um, but back up a little bit, you turn about um, take, take the trail as it um, as it is. I don't think that's the exact quote you said. Take what the trail gives you. Take what the trail gives you. <laughs> so I um, recently, it, this it just worked out well. I didn't plan it this way. Just had my first cross-country race back this last weekend. Um, and I remember how much I miss it. But so I thought about that as I was reading through the book again. And then when I got to that section, it reminded me uh, a couple of years ago, I, I flew out to uh, Colorado Springs to do the incline. And it just happened to be that like, like weather had been great. And then the day before I got out there is snow. So then it was 30 degrees. <laughs> it's snowy. So it's like, okay, you know, I had been training and I wanted to see, well, how fast could I do it? And sorry Clearly, to interrupt, but you should, you should explain what you're talking about to oh, you, what the, so, man, what the Manitou <laughs> incline is for people who don't okay, know. Okay. So for the listener, so the Manitou incline is an old, uh, I'll call it like a cart line that was for mining, I believe. Um, now it's been decommissioned. It is a trail that is just shy of a mile. Um, I think it's around 0 0.9, 0 0.93, something like that. And it climbs 2,000 feet in that time. So the average gradient is 40%. And yeah, and it's it, there's uh, railroad ties. There's uh, at certain sections, there's grates to allow water to pass underneath so it doesn't wash out the trail, uh, that kind of stuff. And so I, at the time, I was like, well, Joseph Gray has the verifiable fastest known times, like high 17s or something like that. I'm like, I'm definitely not going to be that fast, but like, could I do mid 20s? Could I do, you know, any faster than that? So it, it's a little tough in that I live in a low altitude environment. I don't have hills like that to trade on. But we did our best to try, you know, to train for it. I think I ended up like, like 30, 30 or something like that um, with the snow. And, it, but it, with the saying, it reminded me of not so much the ascent as the descent down uh, the backside of the trail to get back. 
because it was like, it, at least that day, you know, patches of slushy snow. It's it's trying to melt. It's got there's rocks and, and tons of switchbacks and just not something that I go with in my everyday life. Um, but you know, I had my trail. I had my spikes with me, um, which are the best because I don't have trail shoes, and just use those and got down as you know best I could. It was not fast coming down, but that's exactly what I thought of. It was just like. I'd already done the hard work getting up as best I could. And then it was simply a matter of descend however you're able to without trying to like twist an ankle going fast for no reason. Um, and anyway, so yeah, I once I hit that, that part of the book, I can't remember what chapter that was. Um, that's what that reminded me of. So I just, I wanted to share that anecdote with you, I guess. Thanks. Well, I've only done the Manitou Incline once. It was um, when I was with Jason Coop's ultra running camp and we did that crazy incline in the middle of a long run on a hot day. So we ran like eight miles through the mountains to get to the base of it. We went up it and then we did another, I mean, our total that day was 22 or something. So that mm. was, <laughs> it was tough. A actually, and I remember it was Memorial weekend and I was so inspired by all the average looking mm -hmm. people with their and families, with their kids out there. Like they, they did not look athletic and they're carrying gallon water jugs, but they were determined to get to the top. And I, yeah. it was really neat to witness. Yeah. We have, um, my wife has a couple of sisters that live in Colorado Springs. One of them does the incline semi-regularly and it, yeah, it's just, as far as I understand, and actually my college coach uh, is from Manitou. His parents live on the street where the incline um, is, which is how I learned about it and ended up going out there. Um, it's just, it's like a ritual for a lot of the people that live around there. Like I'm going to do, I do it once a week or I do it, some of them once a day. Uh, it's just this thing that people go out and do like any other trail, except it's this <laughs> extreme <laughs> ascent and then you get this, you know, beautiful view at the top. I hope you guys stopped at the top and had a chance to like right. look out. It wasn't just a, <laughs> let's continue on. No, we did. Yeah, that's good. Um, so uh, you obviously made the transition from road to trail. Uh, as I was getting prepared to talk to you, for some reason, Google started giving me all these articles on like trail running. So I saw um, the national championship for like the 10k kind of distance was this last weekend um and i'm like oh maybe you know, maybe i should start doing that so how do you make the transition or is there a transition from road to trail and then like in my particular case or for people that don't live at altitude and are going to be going to uh you know races that are typically going to have some altitude to them how do you deal with that situation? Okay, well, let me take your first question first. Sure. Um, you know, if, if simply just go run a trail, and if if it's a, if it's only five miles or so or under an hour, you don't need really any special preparation. You don't need trail shoes. Just go out and enjoy it. But generally speaking, I mean, my advice for anyone who's less familiar with trail running and only has been doing road is to take more of everything. You need more time 
because it's going to be slower. You need more fluids or calories. Um, you need more patience. And so it's really a, a mental and logistical adjustment to make peace with being slower because you're, the, the variability of the terrain and the hills will slow you down. Um, I can <laughs> tell you a funny story about one of my first memorable runs. Um, uh, I was three months postpartum with my first baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and my husband and I, it was our anniversary. This was 1998. So I had been running for a few years, but I had been pregnant and had my first baby when I was 29. And my husband and I had our anniversary. I'm like, I, we're going to leave our baby with the first for with the babysitter for the first time ever. We're going to go do this trail. I'd always wanted to run. And it was the French trail in Redwood Park of Oakland. And this is just a classic, beautiful Redwood trail I'd heard so much about. And I was so nervous about leaving our baby for the first time, but we were leaving her with, with really good friends of ours who also had a baby. And I was, I left a bottle of breast milk. So I'm like, okay, we're good Mm -hmm. for about, you know, we've got like an hour and a half. And I had estimated the time it would take us with mileage based on my knowledge of road running. And I felt like the worst mother. We get out. This trail is so crazy slow and so challenging. And I immediately lose cell service. I mean, it's back in the mid 90s when cell service wasn't great. Right. So I'm just like crying. And, <laughs> and the, I'm like, I am the worst mother ever. And it took, we were like an hour late picking up our new baby. And I was just like, that was my introduction to my first real memorable trail run. Um, so don't do that. <laughs> But when you're transitioning to trail running, I mean, my, I wrote a whole, whole book about it. So my book goes into a lot of a lot of the mental and logistical pre- preparation mm-hmm. you need to be safe and to enjoy it. Um, you know, one of one of the guys I quote early in the book, who's a top runner, base in you know both road and trail runner, basically just says, you know, a lot of it's about just chilling out and mm-hmm. and relaxing into the run and also taking care of yourself along the way. So to give another example, just like to, to understand the difference in time and the, cha- the, the endurance needs, um, my first trail marathon was a real eye-opener because um, when I was at my peak in my 30s, I, you know, I was getting my, my road marathon times down to the uh, mid to low three hours. So mm-hmm. I was doing you know, fairly well. Um, with road marathoning and I entered a trail marathon in the San Francisco suburbs on a mountain called Mount Diablo which is um, goes from about 500 feet up to 3,500 feet so it's a 3,000 foot climb and we looped around and did two summits so I had no idea what I was in for and I didn't I didn't carry enough water I only had one little goo gel and I didn't realize how much hiking would be involved and it was this transformative, exciting adventure. But the upshot was my time for that marathon. It's in the book. I think it was like five twenty something. Yeah, and I, think, I almost. I think won. you say like. I I, I showed the difference. You were like the elevation. first. You were the first I, up, right? I was. I ended up being second female. I got passed towards right, the but end. At, but at the, at the first summit, you were the first up or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, but I mean, if you look at the elevation profile change between like the little Boston Marathon and then this double summit of this right. mountain. So, but the point is, is 
it took me well over five hours to go 26 miles, which was unthinkably slow to me, but I actually yeah. did really well. And so that just gives you an idea. If you're a three and a half hour road marathoner, then a tough trail marathon may take you five to six hours. And mm -hmm. so you just have to build up to um, that greater endurance of time on your feet and take care of your systems along the way. Like, you know, hydration and fueling becomes so much um, more important to manage and as well as body temperature, you know, mm -hmm. thermoregulation, whether, you know, to avoid getting too hot or in the mountains too cold, that's really essential for, for staying out there safely and getting to the finish. Um, and it becomes even, you know, once you get to 50 Ks to hundred milers, then it, it, you know, I just did a race that took me over 33 hours, yeah. with no sleep. So, uh, actually that's not true. I took my first trail side nap. I passed out for 10 minutes in the middle of the night. Um, so yeah, you, you know, it, things get more interesting the longer you're out there for sure. Or that's, that's something I wondered about. Cause I think, um, I don't think I'm mixing this up, but I think you'd said, from from the race you just did the winner the winning woman was like 24 25 hours something 25 like, hours 25 yeah. and, and so i'm just like it seems like there's probably no sleeping in that time yeah but then if you're taking a nap like are, are you are you setting an alarm or are you just hoping <laughs> no no, you wake no. Up? So, so um and then i should still answer your question about altitude adaptation okay but, so the race i did for our listeners this was july 30th and 31st in central Colorado called the High Lonesome 100. And it's quite tough. It's not the toughest, but it is tough enough to be a hard rock qualifier, um, which means it, it's a qualifying race to apply to be in the Hard Rock 100, which is a really a big deal in Colorado. Um, it had about 23,500 feet of elevation gain. It got up to 13,000 feet. Um, a lot of the race was above 12,000 feet. Um, it, it was, <laughs> it was a tough race for sure. So no, normally you should not take naps. Um, you know, I, I've done a lot of hundred milers and, you know, you get incredibly sleepy in the middle of the night, especially if it's at high altitude, cause you're mm -hmm. oxygen deprived or if it's in really cold temperatures. Um, but you just power through the night and don't sleep. But I, this was the first time, um, I was in, I, I was maybe around 4 a.m. and it was very cold and I, I couldn't keep my eyes open. Maybe it's, it has to do with age, I don't know. But um, at this point in the race, I had what's called a pacer, which is someone who accompanies you. And it was my good friend. And I, I knew enough because I'm a napper. Like I, if I'm tired when I'm driving, I can pull over at, at the side of the road and close my eyes for 10 minutes and so effective and then I wake up so I told my my pacer I said Claire I'm just gonna lie down I said I don't want to wait till the aid station to try a nap because the lights and noise will wake me up so I took out my emergency bivy that we have to carry which is like a, a space blanket and I um, used my down puffy which we also had to carry because it was so cold out I used it as a pillow. I closed my eyes and I passed out for 10 minutes. It was magic. And then I'm like, okay, let's go. So it was, it was, it was a calculated strategic decision. Like it's mm -hmm. worth it to pass out for 10 minutes in a mini nap because I knew I would feel better. So, and again, this, this comes with experience, like this understanding this 
take, you know, doing well at ultras, it's, you have to know your body and have been in these kind of mountainous environments before. So that, mm -hmm. that worked for me, but yeah, generally, unless you're graduating to the crazy 200 milers, you don't, you don't sleep midway, but you asked about altitude adaptation. Did, so you yeah. want to know, okay. So I have clients back in California at sea level who mm -hmm. train for some tough Colorado races. And the best, like, I don't advocate getting a hypoxic tent over your bed or anything mm -hmm. like that. Like that's, that's expensive and more trouble than it's worth. What I do, basically what you need to do is be as cardiovascularly fit as possible. Because what you have to understand is when you're in the mountains, you're asking your working muscles to make do with less oxygen flowing mm -hmm. to them. So you basically have to adapt your body to be as fit as possible so it can handle getting less oxygen. So one, one way to do that is just, you know, do more speed work, do more high intensity hill work, anything that raises your um, breathing up to the point of, of being an intense effort that, you know, boost your cardiovascular fitness. So that means, um, you know, even though on the day of your ultra marathon, you're gonna be going a slow and steady tortoise pace, you still want to have done that speed work um, in your training cycle so that your heart and lungs are ready to work hard in the thin air. Um, and then I'm a believer in heat training because if you think about running in really hot temperatures, it's similar to altitude insofar as your working muscles are getting less oxygen because mm -hmm. some of the blood the, the blood carrying oxygen is being diverted to the surface of your skin to, to perspire and cool your body off. Mm -hmm. So your body is more stressed and your blood flow is working harder to cool your body off in heat. And therefore it is again, adapting to that stress of, of running with less oxygen flowing to your working muscles. So my clients in California did a lot of heat training this summer before um, running in the, the tougher mountains. And then you just try to, you know, make, make the most of what you have around you. If you have any mountain environments, or if you can take a long day trip to, you know, I have a, a client in, um, Missouri who's training for, um, a mountainous race. And mm -hmm. she just budgets three day weekends to come to Colorado to train, which is expensive and time consuming, but right. It, it helps. So those are, those are my, that's my advice, but yeah, it's, it's tough. It, you, you can't just come to the high altitude a week before the race and hope to get adaptation. It really takes months. And so, um, you know, I'm grateful. I sleep at 9,000 feet and do my runs at tree line a lot. Yeah. Um, but it never gets easy. Like, even though I live here and I run up to 11,500 feet, which is tree line a lot. Anything over 12,000 is like, they're, they're, that will never be easy. It's still, mm -hmm. it's still really tough. I, I don't think I'm misremembering this. You talked about uh, heat adaptation. I, I think it was when I was talking to Scott Johnston, who's the author of the uphill athlete training. It's like uphill athlete training for the uphill athlete um, co-author. Um, I talked to him back on episode 60 um, which if you're watching the video, that's what I was trying to figure out was what episode that was. Um, and so I, I think he talked about just you get more benefit conditioning wise 
not just like heat conditioning, being able to deal with the heat, but overall fitness improves. So like if, even if you go back to say a comfortable temperature, like sixties and seventies, that heat acclimation, I can't remember why, but it seems like it it has some kind of efficacy in making you perform better at like optimal temperatures as well. So like, I always think about that in, in, yeah, I mean, because you're, you know, well, to... it's a couple, a couple things have happened. You've become more fit cardiovascularly, mm-hmm. but you've also become more comfortable with being uncomfortable. I right. mean, when I've had to do, I've done several desert races in triple digit heat and you want to have some hot runs leading up to that mm-hmm. just so you get used to it. I mean, you, you just have to again, get comfortable with being uncomfortable and relax and do it and remind yourself like you have to slow your pace and manage, manage your fluids and your, your thermoregulation Mm -hmm. a lot more carefully. Um, so it's, it, you need that training before, before I, I last was in a hot running environment back in May when Mm -hmm. I went down to Arizona and I paced and crewed a friend for part of the crazy Cocodona 250, which was an inaugural endurance event um, point to point in Arizona that went from, uh, I believe, Black Canyon, Arizona, north to Flagstaff. And the afternoons of, I mean, this was, this, this is a race that took people like five days and they definitely slept during part of it. Um, but the afternoon temperatures in the, in the you know, high 90s to even 100, it was just brutal. And, you know, it's that safety becomes a real issue Mm -hmm. there. Like you have to take care of yourself. So are you, I mean, when you're dealing with all the different temperature changes, day, night, like, (coughs) excuse me, um, are you carrying three, four outfits with you? Like I am. Yes. So the, I, the race I just did three weeks ago is a perfect example because you have to prepare for both the hottest temperatures and mm-hmm. the coldest right. because at nighttime above 12,000 feet and it was raining and we had really strong weather, um, the temperatures are dipping down into the thirties. Um, and in past years, it's even snowed, but then on the, uh, on day two, um, the last 25 miles of the race are below tree line in a canyon and it was it can get really hot it wasn't too terribly hot when we ran it but I had to prepare so yeah you make use of drop bags and you have nighttime gear so at the mile 50 aid station where I have my crew and my husband they they put a beach towel around me for modesty and I stripped down my shorts and I put on leggings for warmth I put on an extra layer. I shoved my down puffy into my pack. Um, you know, I swapped out my sun hat for a wool beanie. So yeah, and then I had packed a drop bag at mile 75 that had a fresh pair of shorts and a t-shirt so I could take off my nighttime hot clothes or warm clothes and be ready for running in, in um, warm weather on day two. I mean, you never know what to expect. And then I... <laughs> The kicker was we got caught in an extreme storm in the last five miles. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time ever, because here in Colorado, I mean, it's crazy. It can be beautiful, hot and sunny blue sky until noon. And then the clouds gather and you get extreme high altitude weather, which is what happened. And it was so 
it was such a deluge with so much electricity. I mean, there was thunder and lightning right overhead that the race director actually made the difficult decision to put the race on hold. So he called his communications teams at the aid stations and had runners hold at the held at the aid stations. Um, and we all had to stop for about 20, 25 minutes until the storm blew out because that's how dangerous and extreme it was. So that was quite something I was, my pacer and I were running through ankle high water. I could barely see because the water was coming down so much. And I was, I was so depleted. I was like exhausted. It was mile 99 and um, you know, thunder like rifle shots was ringing out overhead and there was flashes of lightning and it, it was in flash flooding. It was, it was crazy, it was biblical. And this vehicle, pulled, you know, I was like, I gotta get to the finish. And this vehicle pulls up at my side and the window goes down to the race director. He's like, get in, <laughs> no, I gotta finish. He's like, no, get in. And he was rounding up all the runners in the last stretch to make sure we were safe. So that's the crazy stuff that happens in the mountains. That's what makes it an adventure. And so then we had to get out completely cold and stiff-legged. Yeah. He's like, okay, let's start running again. <laughs> That's why you have to keep a sense of humor too. Like it was memorable. That's like, what can you say? And we survived. So it was very exciting. As I was reading about that, I was like, it, it, it plays out at least in my head that you were there. So it maybe even more so it plays out to me almost like an action movie where like the race director's like going, like trying to save everybody. He's like the yeah. hero and the, I don't know what kind of vehicle it was. I, I pictured um like it was a, a big jeep. suv i pictured like a, a jeep or a humvee yeah. or something but like he something was on big. his phone talking to aid station okay. coordinators and his medical directors were freaking out because all the aid stations are made of pop-up tents yeah. with metal frames and right. so runners were huddling under metal frames with yeah. lightning potentially hitting that so it, it was a dicey situation but i really respected how he handled it yeah. really um he put he put the safety of the runners and volunteers first and right. we all we all now are running with the terrible incident in china in our minds of the the ultra that happened where all the runners got killed in extreme weather a couple months ago i, I didn't know so, about that oh it was a, it was national international news no i live I, in a bubble I, so that's, that's probably <laughs> yeah yeah no um there was a an ultra marathon in china and absolutely extreme snowy crazy weather and um you know you tend to think that it's the slower mid to the back of the packers who are going to suffer but actually um the elite level runners who were in the lead were were several of them were the ones who died from mm. the from hypothermia and you know so ultra ultra run, ultra marathons especially the extra long ones in the mountains are taking extra precautions now so that's why we had to carry in our pack for night, we had to carry pants, we had to carry, um, you know, certain types of jackets, emergency bivvies, everything to prevent uh, that kind of scenario. Yeah. So it can turn dangerous. And, you know, so people always um, ask, like, aren't you scared to be running in the trails, like by yourself, as if they're, you know, I'm going to be attacked by either wild animals or bad people. And like, you have to understand weather, the number one safety hazard is weather, um, extreme weather. And then secondly, it's tripping and falling and either mm -hmm. you know hurting your ankle or hitting your head. Um, so safety precautions for thermoregulation 
and knowing wilderness first aid are really, really important. Which brings me perfectly. I wanted to ask you about the safety chapter. Oh, um, yeah. Because <laughs> she's talking about running into wild animals, which in, in your case, oh, your story with your wild husband. Dog, yeah. Right, not necessarily. Well, we don't really, I guess you don't really know whether they're wild animals or whether they're somebody's, probably somebody's. Um, but obviously there's, you know, the safety considerations, you're going to bring first aid and, you know, you, I think you were talking about um, having like a puncture wound on your ankle that you had to treat yourself to be able yeah. to get back down off of a, um, a, a trail. Um, so that, you know, it doesn't come without hazards. So the, the question is, I, obviously you continue to do it, but given that there are hazards, why why would it so why would you all, why why would you continue if you get chased by um, dogs and yeah. you puncture your ankle and you potentially get struck by lightning in a thunderstorm say, like i'm glad you brought that brought up my book because one thing i tried to do with my book is use storytelling mm -hmm. at the start of each chapter before the practical advice and so yeah I, basically in that chapter i lay out how my husband and I made a series of mistakes. Right, it was like a whole we checklist running in of our like... Like, yeah, I went, I kind of unpacked all the stupid things we did when we were traveling in Argentina mm -hmm. and it could have ended really, really badly. And so it's important to understand like the things we did wrong. So one of the main things we did wrong is um, not having communication and not, you know, people couldn't, wouldn't have found us or, you know, um, so for that reason, I always think about, you know, what kind of breadcrumbs electronically or otherwise am I leaving so people know where to find me if they need to and how, and so that, that can be, if I'm by myself having a spot GPS tracker or having my phone or, you know, but phones are unreliable in the mountains. So yeah, being, being careful. Um, so read that safety chapter for the checklist, um, and just prepare for prepare for the unexpected but why do i do it um i i really value um i mean i value so much the experience of running and i don't want to always have to line up a friend or partner to be with me for safety's sake so mm -hmm. i want the freedom the freedom to be able to run solo and um you know, I, I just take all the precautions I can. Um, and I, and I want the freedom to be able to explore less populated areas. I mean, my daughter is now living in LA mm -hmm. and she's really getting into hiking, which is wonderful. And so she's doing these big hikes on the weekend and I'm telling her like, Oh, you have to do this and this. And she's like, mom, you have no idea how crowded the trails are around here. I'm never going to be like, if something happened to her, there's so many people on those LA area trails, someone mm -hmm. could help her. But where I am, I'm really out there solo and, and I love it and I value it so much. Um, and I value running with friends too, but again, it's hard to line up having someone with you. So, yeah. I mean, the, the why, it, it's, it's not that I want to be alone or I want to be risky, that's not it at all. It's just, I wanna get my run in mm -hmm. on these beautiful trails. And so I do everything I can to stay safe with it. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to run you too, too damn on time and try to give you a little bit of, oh, I'm margin. doing okay. I'm fine. Um, it, I don't know. I think about the, 
um, the experience of running and like like how it plays a role in my life and um doing it on your own having friends like the it's always nice to have somebody to go out with but i would think especially in your case the i mean talking about the just that i'll call it a short run the like 20 some odd miles you did through Colorado springs with the incline of it like you're not always going to have a, a friend where you're like, let's go at this time and go run for the next five hours. Like it, it's not always um, on everybody's agenda though. Maybe in Colorado, it's a little bit easier to find those kinds of friends than it is maybe for me here. Um, but it, it, do you make any kind of uh, prerogative of saying, you know, once a week or once a month, like I am going to go out with friends or is it just like, as long as I get my run in, like I'm, I'm good to go. Oh no, I, I, I do social runs. I run um, every Wednesday morning. I join, join a local running group in town mm-hmm. and, you know, a lot of my runs are, are shorter too. It's like being an ultra runner does not mean you have to log long miles every day. Mm-hmm. Um, no, no, no. I, I love, I love running with other people and introducing other people to the sport. And, um, but I also value my time alone too. Uh, you know, you, I want to bring up something you touched on earlier about listening to podcasts or music mm-hmm. and safety considerations. So part of the reason I like to run alone is I'm really into audiobooks. Um, and so a lot of my time on the trail is spent listening to good books. And it's, I just want to give a tip about how to do that safely and what I've, I've okay. started to do. Um, so when I'm out on the trail by myself, I am aware that I'm in mountain lion and bear habitat. Mm -hmm. And I do want to, you know, keep my ears open and especially on single tracks where it's like single track trail, that's pretty overgrown. And I Mm -hmm. feel like, you know, I could actually have a, a wild animal encounter here. Um, so what I've started to do is instead of having my AirPods in my ear, is I stick my phone in my front hydration pocket and play the book, the sound of the book from the phone speaker out of my pocket. Mm -hmm. So what that is, is I would not do that with music. Like, I think it's really obnoxious to other trail users to have, to come across other people's music playing loudly. Like that really interrupts the trail experience. But having like basically a conversation coming out of my pocket of this Mm -hmm. podcast or audiobook it's a way for me to listen to it with my ears open and aware of my surroundings, but it also serves as a warning to trail other trail users and big animals that there's someone coming down the trail. And so Mm -hmm. I really, maybe it's a false sense of security, but that's one little bit of thing I've developed over the past several years that I feel like is a good way to warn large animals away. Like I've had, you know, I have seen bears run away from me because you know, they don't want human encounters either. So that's just a little tip I have. I used to sing out loud on the trail when mm-hmm. I felt like I was in cougar habitat. I'd be like, I'd start singing or saying, hey, bear, here I come, bear. Just like alert big animals. I'm coming down yeah. the trail. But that's kind of silly. And so just having the audiobook playing in my pocket seems like a like a good work around that. Yeah, as soon as you said you had it in your pocket, I was like, I think I know where you're going. And yeah. I have a like a more mundane version of that is like we have not where I am right here because I'm now in the heart of the city, but we several years ago when I was doing more like runs in a park, 
has a trail it was a paved trail but then there's lots of wildlife so it was not unusual to come across like a rattlesnake hanging out on the pavement yeah. of the trail you know sunning in the afternoon or um deer especially and i never want to spook the deer because they often have you know babies with them and i'm like i don't need a deer to charge me so i would get in the habit of like if i saw one uh trying to whistle or something like something yeah. to be like like i'm behind you i'm come please don't like yeah. freak out and charge at me like even though the deer is not a predator it's not gonna feel good <laughs> if, it, yeah. if it like runs into you and freaks out so i i uh definitely have employed kind of a similar strategy and like you i i don't know if it works or not but um i've had a lot of snake encounters and i did almost one step on a rattler because i had airpods in i thought like what's the static what's yeah. this noise i thought some of my something was wrong with my speakers it's like oh no there's a snake right there rattling yeah. its tail and warning and i i was being stupid and what had my earbuds in yeah um so yeah live and learn <laughs> right um so before we run out of time so i'm asking everybody uh, the same question this year you you listened to my episode with jason so you know the question uh, but i'm asking everybody this year how do you stay motivated after failing to reach a goal how do I stay? Oh, actually, I, I, I didn't listen long enough to get that question. Okay. Um, you're catching me off guard. How do I stay motivated after failing? How do you stay motivated after failing to reach a goal? Yep. Yeah, I think um, so. This has happened to me personally, and it happens to my clients. And I just take everything as a learning experience. And you, I, I mean, that's what resiliency is all about. It's about learning from failure and then just really chant, like make peace with that disappointment, but channel it into determination. Like um, I've only had two DNFs in my life and I've raced, I don't know, over a hundred races, um, mm -hmm. many, many ultras. And um, I, it, back in 2018, I failed. I, I dropped out at around mile 60 of one of the hardest hundreds here in Colorado called the Uray 100. And it haunted me. And I, and um, it, it became a motivator. I mean, I'm like, I, I, I'm not going to go back to that one race, but I'm going to learn from it. And I, I really thought about like what led to that dropout. And that was a big factor in the two I did. I've done two hundreds this year, one in January and the one a few weeks ago. And um, I thought about that failure from 2018 and it totally motivated me and it helped me. Like I, I didn't repeat that mistake. Um, so fail, you know, failure is a good thing as I tell my kids, like, you know, it's, it, it's a learning experience and, and a motivator. It's like, I asked that question because I think most of the people I speak with have plenty of experience failing, but I know that um, some people have trouble like getting started because they don't want to fail. And at least personally, I'm like, a failing is not the end of the world. Like everybody fails. And the more you try, the more you're going to fail. It just comes along naturally with, you know, success and like they're, they go hand in hand. So I, I love hearing like different well, yeah, failing, approaches I mean, to it. I would also ask if my clients, if, if a new client came to me saying like, I want to have a coach because I am so upset of, of this race, you know, I was really aiming for a PR and I missed it by 15 minutes. And I just like, I'm so upset about it. And I, and I would say like, well, 
I would first question was, was that time goal really realistic? Like, mm -hmm. you know, are you failing because you set an unrealistic goal? Like, I believe, I believe goals should be aspirational, but achievable. Mm -hmm. And you should also have like goals leading up to it or, or stepping stones along the way, process oriented goals. So, you know, sometimes we fail because we've set the bar unrealistically high, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's important, like, and I'll just end by saying like, as an aging athlete who is, has significantly slowed down for a few different factors. I mean, I peaked in my thirties and early forties and now I'm 52 and it's, and I have to make peace with being a slower mid packer now. And that means adjusting goals. It's not about failing. It's just like being realistic about where you are now mm -hmm. in life. And you know, sometimes I don't want, I feel self-imposed pressure and nervousness about racing because I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to do as, especially if it's a race I've done before and I did well at, I'm like, there's no way I can do as well as I did two years ago. And just like, you know, motivating yourself to just do the best you can on that given day under the circumstances, mm -hmm. like, you know, stop, stop the comparisons with your earlier self or with other competitors, like just do your best on that given day. Um, but I, I think failure is itself a great, a great motivator and a teacher. Sarah, um, where can people get the book, uh, see what you're up to, get in touch with you, all that kind of stuff. Well, okay. Well, thanks for asking. So I want to give the book subtitle just so people yes, please. Get, understand. So the book is called the trail runners companion. And the subtitle is a step-by-step -step guide to trail running and racing from 5Ks to ultras. It's a mouthful. It's got um, <laughs> but kind of explains what the book's about. Um, and it has funny stories in it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're funny. I didn't want it to be like a boring how-to book. Like I wanted it to right. be a good read. Um, but you can get it on Amazon. Um, it's at some independent bookstores, but mostly mostly on Amazon. Um, and I'm on face, I'm on Facebook, I'm on um, Instagram at Sarah running. And I have a blog called the runner's trip, which it's a, you know, blogging is now seems like such a retro thing because everyone just puts several paragraphs under their Instagram posts and calls that a race report. But um, yeah. I've been blogging for well over a decade. I, I started out as a travel blogger back in the days when I did significant travel and um, and I've had a running blog for over a decade. So I, I still update it occasionally, but that's called the runner's trip. And then if people are interested in my coaching, um, just go to sarahlavendersmith.com. Sarah so I have a website with my portfolio and my coaching info. That's about it. Yeah. So if you're interested in picking up the book, it, although it is a manual, it, it really, it, it feels more like this conversation like you're sitting there with sarah and she's telling you stories and then like relating that to what you should be doing it's definitely not uh you know this is the dictionary style trail road and you won't and you will not find training like training plan grids in there right. i am not a believer in cookie cutter one size fits none week by week training plans. What I yeah. do is I give advice on how you should structure your week based on your training level and your individual circumstances. But I, I, I'm 
believe that anyone who downloads a plan from the internet or just gets a training grid, you're setting yourself up for injury potentially, or you're either on any given day you're, that whatever this generic plan prescribes is going to be too easy or too hard for you. Mm -hmm. So you really need to, to learn how to properly um, uh, structure your own training weeks and your own training block. And so that's what I try to help people do. Sarah, thanks for hanging out with me today. Yeah, it's been great to talk. It's been really fun. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely.